can't remember ever a time that I had a job where I didn't think this seems crazy <laughs> that I am doing mm -hmm. so much work and making someone else money. I just had this sort of um, like basic sense that that didn't that didn't seem right to me. Hello, my name is Josh Chambers, and welcome to How Humans Change. Usually, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. Occasionally, we speak with someone who has expertise on change or is looking to bring about change in the world in a systemic way. I had the privilege uh, last year during an interview, uh, Leaf and I were shooting a documentary with our dear friend, John Booker, and I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Heather Berg. Dr. Berg is a professor of feminist studies at University of California. We were discussing in the documentary uh, her perspective on labor because she has done quite a bit of research in the sex industry, sex work, pornography, around um, labor and labor laws and things like unions and how people are or are not taken care of systemically. And she's also done quite a bit of work in the public policy space. Now, as you will hear, that is where we spend a good bulk of our conversation. And uh, Heather doesn't line up really nicely in any political box, which is part of the reason I wanted to talk to her. Uh, another part of the reason is, I mean, we talk about socialism. She's uh, not a fan of capitalism. And I really appreciated during our conversation in the documentary how kind and inviting she was in her approach. These are not small topics, and there is often a deep amount of condescension when people are expressing their political views, but not only was that not there with her, you just kind of wanted to hear more. She had such a, and does have such a kind, like I said, kind and inviting way about her. So we discuss, uh, we discuss a lot of things around capitalism. Is it working? Is it not working? what alternatives there might be, how to affect change gradually, and a number of other things. And we also get into her story a bit, um, having a mom who, uh, well, I'll let her share that, but um, some of her own changes that she experienced and how uh, she became who she is. All right, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Heather Berg. But a good first question might be, did you grow up in a socialist household? <laughs> um, my mom was like a good liberal. Um, and <laughs> um, so definitely grew up like in a progressive household. Um, my mom um, has, you know, I grew up uh, exposed to a lot of um, social justice ideas. And um, it was really important to my mom that... Um, you know, that I not be an asshole in that way. Um, so, but she wasn't, yeah, she wasn't a socialist at the time. I think I'm moving the needle on her now. <laughs> Guys, because when I was looking at your story, uh, or not your story, but looking at your resume now, yeah, um, there are so many things on it that you would assume aren't things you grow up with. Mm. Like if, if you see someone who's a doctor, like, oh, maybe their parents were a doctor. It's not that right. big of a deal. But to see someone like you who has studied and been involved in, at least from an academic perspective, sex work right. and is an active feminist in feminist studies and basically saying 
hey, capitalism's done. Let's do socialism or some version of it next. It's yeah. like, did you? I don't think many people that are around our age had that, unless your parents were really unique, had that as an upbringing. Right. I think certainly like the feminist piece was, was there for me. Um, my mom came out when I was nine, but, um, even before that, um, she, you know, wasn't a a committed feminist and, and really like absolutely committed to, to economic and racial justice. Um, so like none of that was new. I think, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't, uh, do that, um, Gosh, you can cut this part out because I can't. Think of it. Um, <laughs> totally you know, this, um, my dog is now. Um, uh, you know that uh, show where the the kid has hippie parents and becomes a conservative, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you had some foundation, though. It, yeah. it wasn't. You had some some lanes to swim in that were more on the more progressive side of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, who's the doggy? Oh, this is Gus. He just jumped up. <laughs> Hi, Gus. Hi. <laughs> All right. So you grew up in a feminist household. You said your mom came out when you were nine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, my mom went on a, a Sierra club trip and, um, and this cute lady, uh, flirted with her and they had a torrid love affair. And then she came home, she was 45 at the time. And she came home and said, you know, I think I'm a lesbian. Um, so yeah, so we, um, moved across the country and she cut off her hair and started wearing a lot of those quilted vests, you know, (laughs) (laughs) where were you? Where did you move from and to, um, we were in Rhode Island at the time and then to Arizona. Okay, got it. Yeah. And was was dad in the picture at that time? Not my biological father. Um, yeah, she she had um, remarried my stepdad at the time, and he was okay. like very cool about it. So, Whoa. yeah, yeah. Really? So, yeah. So she and this woman dated um, for a bit, and then lost touch. And um, and my mom did that thing that a lot of people do when they come out later in life, which is to like have their adolescence in their forties, and then right. Um, and then they just reconnected a couple years ago. So now they're back together. And what? It's very sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's really sweet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. oh. Wow. So, okay. So that happened in year nine. So huge yeah. move and huge. Um, I'm going to make some assumptions on age, but that probably was around the 90s, right? Somewhere then? Yes. Uh, I guess that would have been like 97. Okay. Yeah. So it was sort of kind of acceptable at that time what was that like yeah um i mean there were just definitely some like jerky kids but um but Mm. mostly i was just aware it it caused um my mom had to deal with a lot of homophobia at work and i think um and thinking backwards to your question of like how do you get to be anti-capitalist i think really early on seeing um her employer uh, mess with her for for something that was really totally unrelated to work um uh, and she just she just dealt with such intense blowback um having come out and i think there's you know of course i, I hadn't really c- thought about it until later but of course that taught me early on that you know your boss is not your friend right right uh, was she in a position of power or was she middle management or lower? Um, she was a, a social work teacher, uh, professor at a, a small college. And um, 
So, so they caused a lot of upheaval in the department. Dang. And the thing that, um, that saved her and therefore us was the union. So I think that was when I first learned about what unions really do and yeah. this like really, um, kind of visceral understanding and like that, that was the thing that, that let us, um, let us survive. Wow. Wow. That's a very personal union story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, thinking back, of course, that makes sense that that would, that would uh, leave a mark. Yeah. yeah. My grandfather was the president of the National Steelworkers mm. Union. Oh, and wow. um, I don't think it was national. I'd have to look it up. I, I think it was a region. Mm. Um, but a huge union advocate and very yeah. active. And I remember he would always go when I was growing up, he would always go hang out with guys from the union, but it was always juxtaposed against my dad who was an electrician mm. and who had this phrase wasn't, wasn't good, but he would call them the slugs from the union huh. because they would have to hire a certain amount of union workers. Uh -huh. And whenever they did, he always found them to be really lazy. Oh, interesting. Um, what poorly trained. Hmm. So I grew up with with a, a grandpa who was yeah. very um, vocal and hmm. supportive, and then a dad who was like, "They're the worst." <laughs> wow. Um, and it it created it always created some tension for me of of trying to figure out what I actually thought about it and what's right. And even now in today's modern um, in today's world, you still hear valid points for both sides um or okay so for people who can't see you're like i don't know about that you're shaking your head <laughs> well i think you know so was your dad in the union or was he management he was he was he started in the field so just a okay. normal electrician and then yeah. he eventually became, he worked his way up into management yeah well so then i think that those are valid points from the from the position that people on either side occupy, which is one thing that I like about feminist studies is that they really like highlight. So of course it's, it was true for your dad as a manager, right. um, but just like my, you know, when I, landlords, it's true for them that, <laughs> that people, um, you know, never pay their rent on time or whatever. Like, so right. I think from that, from that location, if I'm sure it felt true. Yeah, and so from that's that's maybe a good segue into saying what I think you're saying is that there can be a, a truth at an individual level, but when you zoom out, that's no longer a helpful way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. So it's it's true that there's not that maybe the people from the union that my dad were dealing with were it, it, this is a whole other this is a whole other can of worms. My dad's view <laughs> on things and yeah. people. Um, <laughs> But if you zoom out, what you're what I'm hearing you say is that there's a different perspective that needs mm -hmm. to be taken into account. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think you know some people would say there's one truth, and then our job is to find it. Um, what what I would say is that your truth depends on your social location, and then and then my job is to figure out like who I want to ally with. So I'll. Um, I'll respect your dad, <laughs> then I would say mm -hmm. in general, it's not bosses, you know, for me that yeah. I, that I choose to ally with, which is not to deny their truth, but it's just not right. what I want to represent. Yeah. Well, so rewind back to, you start, you go to college 
um, you did you start in feminist studies and then you get your PhD in what specifically and what was your dissertation in that whole yeah Tell me about that whole <laughs> sure. decade or whatever it was right um, so yeah I went to I moved to New York uh, to go to NYU when I was seventeen um, and I I had a, a scholarship for tuition but I was on my own for for rent. So I went to Queens and got a fake ID and, um, and lied and said, I knew how to 10 bar and, uh, got a job as a cocktail waitress and started tending bar and, um, and really learned a lot about, uh, gender and class there too. Kind of on accident through those Um, jobs or was that intentional? in a kind of job that um, I, I was taking some women's studies classes. Um, my major was like this individualized study thing at NYU they let you do. So, but, but I think I learned more about class politics and about um, navigating the world as a woman um, just by working and trying to pay my rent and mm. um, really thinking about, I learned so much from the the women who I worked with who were, actually in their 20s, not fake 20s, right? But um, <laughs> they taught me a lot about um, how to flirt, but also keep your distance and how to be, uh-huh. you know, just this really, I think, sophisticated way of manipulating a situation that in some ways um, makes us vulnerable, but trying to figure out ways to to let that pay your rent felt really powerful. And it, uh-huh. it it made New York possible for me. So yeah. I think that was really formative too. And do you, do you think you were in some ways painted in like being able to see some of those things in mm-hmm. a way that you might not have otherwise have been, had it not been for the experience of watching your mom be abused by her employer? I mean, yeah, I think we can't ever like separate that out. But, um, but I do know that a lot of people who've done that kind of intensive gendered service work um, come out with galvanized politics, you know, regardless of their upbringing. But um, but certainly, like my mom always taught me to to take stock of like how power operations were working and then and then manipulate them <laughs> to your advantage. Huh. Um, she was very very good at that. Um, and so, yeah. So in answer to your first question, so I did that, and then. Um, lived in Mexico for a while and then did a master's in policy and gender in DC. And then I moved to Santa Barbara and did a PhD in feminist studies. Okay. Um, and my dissertation now book that'll come out in a couple of years, um, was on labor in the adult film industry. Got it. And that was kind of the big, that's where it seems like in researching some of your work, that seems like that's where a lot of the press has, focused and where you've gotten a lot of the public attention around that topic in particular, right? Yeah. So why don't you, if you don't mind, give a quick snapshot of what that is and and why you got into it, how that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, when I'd been in New York, I'd been involved with with sex worker organizing communities there. And so I had that piece of my history. And then... um, you know, went on to, when I was starting to do the PhD, realized that there'd been a lot written about escort labor and about um, erotic dance um, and very little about porn as work. Um, Mm. So that wasn't a part of, that wasn't a worker community that I had direct personal experience with, but, um, 
there's also a lot of overlap. A lot of people do more than one kind of sex work. So I knew some folks who were involved in film work and, and I just thought that their labor, um, the, the kind of questions that they were asking about work were really interesting. Um, and I thought it was odd that there's been so much scholarship about porn as a consumer product. Um, you know, a ton of kind of film analysis and things like that, and very little um, about what it's like to actually have a porn workday. So that's what I wanted to do. Interesting. What kind of questions were they asking that, that piqued your interest? Well, I started to do my PhD just as California's uh, Measure B, which was a mandatory condom re- legislation. I okay. don't know. Y'all have heard of that, um, was coming on the books. And so an outside organization was um, lobbying for state-run uh, system that would require condom use on set. And from the outside, even from the perspective of other sex worker communities that I was familiar with, um, sex workers have historically been at the forefront of condom use and have really insisted on it and um, been really experts on on safer sex. Um, and so from that perspective, and then also from the perspective of labor organizing um, in straight industries, there's this sense that, that more state oversight is usually better. Um, but what I was hearing from overwhelmingly from porn workers is that they didn't want this. So I thought that was a fascinating... Mm contradiction in it. It, um, it begged me to kind of dive in more. Yeah. What was going on? I'm curious. What was, was it just don't tell us what to do? We know better (laughs) than the the system or what was it? Well, that was part of it. Um, I think the biggest piece is that, that like other sex workers, porn workers know that they have a very long history of the state being hostile to their very existence. And so it's not like, other jobs um, in that that sex workers know the state is not their ally. And so they've had to make some tricky calculations about who they'll ally with. Um, and so that's where you get this unexpected uh, alliance often with producers um, and directors rather than um, traditional uh, alliances with unions or the state. Um, and so that's part of it. Another piece of it is that a lot of people are not only workers. They're not just performers. They're also management, and that changes from day to day. And so it's not it's not like doing um, talking about brothel work, for example, where there is a you know a group of people who are workers, and there is a group of people making money off their time. Yeah. Uh, that's less and less true in porn. So I think that's a big part of it. And then there's some just kind of technical issues where people say that, you know, shooting a five hour scene with a condom um, is very uncomfortable and create, can create health risks that are not present in the non-sex working population. Right. Yeah. So you're studying this and you're figuring these things out and are you simultaneously starting to question capitalism or does that happen later? Uh, I think that happened before. Um, so I think I really can't remember a job I ever had. I started, you know, babysitting and whatnot, but my first kind of formal job was waitressing when I was 15. And I can't remember ever a time that I had a job where I didn't think this seems crazy (laughs) that I am doing Mm -hmm. so much work and making someone else money. I had this, and yeah, that wasn't directly from my mom, 
or anything like that. I hadn't, you know, read Marx as a baby, <laughs> but, uh-huh. I, but I, I just had this sort of um, like basic sense that that didn't, that didn't seem right to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially cause so much of my work had been in, in food service, um, in the bar industry where you can see at the end of the day, how much money you've made for somebody. <laughs> and right. eventually you do the ordering and you know how much a bottle of whiskey costs and then you know what they charge for it. And you have a sense of what rent is and, you know, and you know, the you know your pre-tip wage is two fifteen an hour. So yeah. there was never a time for me that that seemed normal or or that that should go without saying. That's so interesting because I don't think many people would make that such a such a strong connection to such an extreme. Yeah, I remember one of my first jobs was similar, making two something an hour, serving, and most people. I think it was just one of those things where you took for granted the fact that your wage sucked and you hoped yeah. for tips and that was right. just how it was. Yeah. Most people aren't going to, th- aren't going to say, I wonder if capitalism's, you know, broken. <laughs> yeah. Especially at a young age. What, 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 what do you think made you start to question such a big topic? I, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like uh-huh. really intuitive to me. Um, so that's, it's hard to trace that backwards. Yeah. Again, there was never, uh, I know, you know, the, the title of this podcast is how humans change, but I, mm-hmm. there wasn't a, a kind of what, what socialists call it, a radicalizing moment for me mm-hmm. necessarily. It was, it was really, it just seemed like obvious. Um, and, yeah. and especially working in, in bars where, you know, I was working exclusively with other young women who are trying to figure out ways to, to get by, um, almost under, uh, almost usually, uh, entire, I'm sorry, entirely male managers. And they're, oh, okay. all, you know, those dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember in one bar, you know, the manager had been sleeping with one of my colleagues and then they broke up and he found a way to fire her. And, you know, and I was mm-hmm. 18, but I just remember thinking like, that's fucked up. That, yeah. that, and I yeah. and I had this sense that it was connected to the fact that there are managers and there are workers. So, and that was mm. before I had the language for it. But right. that's a a long way to answer your question, which is to say that when I finally started reading um, socialist texts, they just made a lot of intuitive sense to me. Interesting. So you, it's almost like you had that innate. Mm-hmm. In belief system, and then yeah. you got language later for it. Exactly right, and even before I had the language around activism, I thought, you know, well, what if we just didn't come to work tomorrow? Like, what if we did that? Would that give us power? Would that give us negotiating Whoa. room? And I didn't know about organizing a strike, but it just seemed like intuitively, like you can huh. figure out that you have actually a lot of power that they need you. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's such an interesting. You, you mentioned that the title of the podcast, and going back to that, no, no one has, no one that I've ever talked to has a has a linear path, and very yeah. few people are able to say it was that moment when. Right, right. Like that, I think that sometimes happens as a almost a culmination moment, yeah, or maybe a catalyst moment. Sure. Um, but what's so interesting about what you're saying is that just these innate. Um, interests and, and inclinations that were so 
counter to culture. Mm-hmm. They're not what most 18-year-old bartenders are thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, what were your friends saying at the time? Were you, like, the lone wolf? <laughs> I mean, I think they thought it was a little, like, kooky. Like, well, we can't not come to work tomorrow. But, um, but I think, I, I mean, part of it was naivety that, like, because I hadn't been formally educated in this yet, I didn't have the knowledge that a lot of people learn very early on that they'll be crushed if they resist. Uh-huh. And and that was one thing that it's like absolutely um, linked back to my mom. She has always been fearless. And like, if she thinks there's a right thing to do, like damn the torpedoes for sure. So oh, I think that was part of it. Um, and yeah, so, so I think, you know, my friends didn't have exactly the same inclinations, but they, I think most, I don't think I'm special. I think most working people have at base, you know, some innate sense that like, yeah, this, isn't this isn't fair. fair. Yeah. yeah. We're all paying. I mean, especially in a place like New York, everyone's paying rent. Everyone pays, you right. know, an, a monthly tithe to someone who does nothing in exchange for, right. you know, half your paycheck and, you know, for a, a building that many of them inherited, like, you know, we have this, people yep. have an analysis. So I think, um, that was part of it. I don't know why I, you know, specifically was comfortable being more of a pain in the ass about it, but I I think that a lot of people have that idea. You know, I think that's true that there's that sense a lot of, I, I, I remember growing up with that for sure. And still seeing you, I think we're hearing a lot more of it these days, but the angst of what, what people perceive to be a lack of fairness, Yeah, whether or not it is true um, but in the blue collar community growing up, it's very much it's just a given that everyone above you is just, just kind of taking advantage of you. Yeah. That you're just kind of always, it's just never fair. Right. Um, and some people, what intrigues me too is that some people seem to go in the direction of like a hapless, helpless, well, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. is what it is. But then. Um, other people seem to be, and these people seem to be fewer and far between motivated to challenge Mm -hmm. the construct and challenge the system. Yeah. Um, and it seems like you fell in that ladder camp from a young age. So as you start going to college and university and you start putting some language around it, maybe, maybe put on your expert hat now, the, the, Mm -hmm. the PhD hat and talk about what you started to see. Yeah. Uh, and what you started to learn and question and some of the beliefs that then took shape as, oh, I think I want to plant my flag here now. Mm, right. I think, you know, one of the most powerful, the thing that drew, drew me to gender studies was its commitment to to taking seriously our intuition, which is just, you know, often with regard to gender dynamics. But I mean, more broadly, there's this feminist commitment to saying, you know, if you have a a guttural sense that something isn't right, listen, (laughs) um, and don't, and, and that, you know, that links up to the kind of classic saying, um, the personal is political, but it's also really like to take that seriously to say, like, if you have this, your, your personal circumstances, a jerky landlord, a creepy boss, uh, 
you know, that the, the subway doesn't run on time or you grow up in a place where you can't breathe the air because of pollution, like all of those day-to-day things, that those are, those are matters of politics and they have a language, I think is a really powerful intervention of, of feminist studies and also, as I would later learn, of, of Marxist thought. Um, so, so that's really kind of the bridge. And, and there's something, especially if you're someone who's, as I was, disposed to be kind of, as I said, a pain in the ass about this, it, mm-hmm. to, to feel not like the crazy weirdo to hear from other people um, that, that this is linked up to a system, that it's not just you, is a really empowering thing. Mm. So you get to get some words and some some frameworks that begin to attach themselves to some no- emotions and some thoughts and and insights that you have been having for a while. Exactly right. So you know whether that's um, saying there's a, a feminist theorist Sarah Ahmed who talks about joy, killing joy that there's uh, that so much of feminist history is about like being the joy killer. Uh, in a room um so but that it's so powerful to take to take this outside of the the context of thing oh you just have a problem with rules or authority um or you know like you know following the standards as they've been laid out and to say actually you know it's the it's the rules that that are the problem um there's a lot of community in that when you start linking up with other people so what kinds of things were you seeing then at a, at a broad level when you look back now and even as you even presently think about the structural flaws that we have? You and I have talked before and you had said, oh, I don't think the system's fixable. I think the system needs a reboot. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Sure. In whatever direction you want to go? Yeah, I think... Um, part of what got me there was trying to fix it, <laughs> um, not single-handedly. I never thought that was a possibility, but that I got a, a master's in public policy and worked in um, policy in Washington, D.C., hoping to make some of those incremental changes, um, mm-hmm. and particularly around, around work. Um, but it just became, I was there for two years and I found it so deflating because it was just so clear that you are making compromises at every turn and it is always the same populations being compromised and thrown under the bus. Um, uh, so it wasn't so much compromise as a problem as you were seeing that the same people were the ones that got the short end of the stick over and over. Every time. And so I was working in um, in feminist policy, and so like we were on a, a a multi-year project trying to get paid sick days, for example, um, and and at the end of it, the what what exists in most states now after a really hard fight um, that I was peripheral to, I was just doing research assistance, but but people spent years are still spending years. Um, trying to get this on the books. And what we have in most states now is unpaid sick days, which only helps middle and upper middle class, primarily white people. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's an example of it just, it was just such a massive amount of energy for what seemed like such a small win. And so I think that what what folks who still have faith in incrementalism believe is that you get the small win for the most privileged people and then it filters down. But I just haven't seen evidence for that happening. 
Um, so, so that's really what turned me off to, to reform as a kind of main priority. Um, and and then also, I think that was the kind of final piece that moved me from identifying, um, with liberalism to radicalism. Um, why don't you talk about that, Heather, the, the idea radicalism as a framework. Sure. Um, Because if I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand some of it, it doesn't necessarily um, attach itself to historical ideologies specifically. There might be historical ideologies that worked for a time that you would align with, but it's not so much about saying, well, let's just adopt the policies of that other party 30 years ago. It's very much... I think it's, isn't it kind of a blend of different and newer, mm-hmm. old and new things? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think there's an, there is a really rich historical tradition of folks who at various moments have said, we're not going to negotiate with people in power and ask them nicely to save us and hope that they'll do it. I mean, that there's a long trajectory there. Um, there's a lot of debate in the labor movement, for example, about what tactics make, make most sense. So most mainstream unions went in the direction of, of negotiation um, with a state that, that, from another perspective, the state was always there to serve capital anyway. So asking nicely, you know, without worker militancy behind it, is is going to get you not very far um and then some people don't believe that that's that's going to get us the win but they think it's the only practical solution um and then there are other folks who really um are against that kind of state-oriented politic altogether like anarchists for example so right they just want to blow the whole thing up and exactly so to hell with the consequences well, or, you know, what What one argument would be to say, like, the consequences of the status quo are crushing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that uh, critiques of blowing it up, however we, you know, operationalize that, um, that they, they have a way of suggesting that things are survivable right now, but they're not. You know, people are dying now. Um, people are hurting now. There's violence now. So I think that um, at the hands of this system. So I think that's the distinction. And then so what what came to make most sense for me is a sort of fourth option um, that that folks talk about as radical reform, which is that we can make smallish changes now, but we have to be really careful to make smallish changes that over time can build to tearing it down. Which and there and not all reforms do that. Um, so you have to be very cautious about about which where you place your energy. That, how transparent are people when engaging in that? Because I I would imagine that if you enter into a conversation and the person across the table who is in opposition knows that you're only there for a small win, so that later you can just blow, blow the whole system up <laughs> anyway. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> Right. Well, you have, yeah, you have to be strategic, and they're they're my old old training of uh, lying to bar customers so they give me their money helps. You know <laughs> that you yeah you do have to read the room. Um, so so I th- and you there are these moments where you can like come to a point of agreement with um, people who are are you know with kind of standard issue liberals about um, 
about some changes. So like an example of that would be that rather than fighting for um, for Obamacare, which continues to allow insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies um, and medical conglomerates to set the terms for how much things cost, we want to fight for Medicare for all, which decommodifies medicine, which says, like, you don't get to decide the terms of this. And so that's something that that people, even people who don't want to burn everything down, can get on board with. It also makes most, you know, economic sense. It is a cheaper and more efficient way to do things. But yeah, you're right. Like, in in the back pocket, we have this idea, like, hey, once you tell people that that corporations don't get to decide how much medicine costs. Maybe they'll start thinking, huh, I wonder if that's true about housing. I wonder if that's true about education. And mm-hmm. that can have an, an overall effect of both keeping people alive in the right now and over time building something more radical. That's interesting. So there are some of those big, big issues that you are spending more time, I assume, than now focusing on that are there's a number of candidates right now, for example, that are running on a platform of Medicare yeah, for all. Right. Um, so you can get behind that mm-hmm. and align there, but then yeah. always having this longer term vision in mind. That's right. And that's what I think is most important is that you never, you know, like I think absolutely people should vote and <laughs> we should, you know, do what we can to help people survive right now. Um, but we can never tell ourselves that that's enough. You know, I'm struck by how few of us have, as you're talking about this, myself included, a long-term vision of anything. (laughs) And if you're able to articulate yours, I would love to hear it. But even if you don't agree with a long-term vision, um, that we don't, we don't, very few of us have one and even would know where to look to get one. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why all of the political shenanigans that happen day in and day out feel so uh, dramatic because mm-hmm. it's always got such a short time horizon on it. Right. It's, it's like this or else this mm-hmm. is the, this is the most important thing yeah. all the time, every single day, which feels overwhelming and it can't ever get alleviated because you, you can't look at that, look at it and say, well, we're compromising here so we can get there. So we can get there. So we can get there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think um, for me, I I always want to keep an eye on the long-term prize, but also acknowledge that from where any of us are sitting right now, it would be impossible to, and really irresponsible to say that we know exactly what that long-term goal will look like. So I think that that plotting out, okay, this is what utopia looks like is very dangerous um, for two reasons. Like one, because it, it, it tends to exclude um, a lot of, of voices and concerns that emerge as you get closer to that thing. Um, you know, if you have like this sort of Soviet idea of like, okay, this is where we're going and yeah. um, we get there, then it prevents, it prevents um, groups from, from, editing as they go, but also because as, as, um, out there as, you know, my ideas may seem, (laughs) they're still rooted in like, we're all drinking the same water. We're all, we're all living within the constraints of the contemporary moment. So, um, so I think that I, I, I don't pretend that my, 
my ability to think expansively can can overcome that. I think what we need to do is is make a consistent effort to open things up to give people what they need to survive so that they can they and we can slowly start to imagine bigger things um and that's that's really i'm taking a lot of that from a theorist named kathy weeks who writes about um about the future in precisely this way what would you say are some of the big things that are you can you personally uh can definitively try and move toward without yeah. being um, without being so narrow that you forget people along the way or that when you arrive, you realize that you're a dictator too. Uh-huh. As you're saying, what are some of the things now that you're trying to look for in the next, I don't know what your time horizon is, five years, sure. 10 years, 20 years? Yeah. Well, and that too, I, I think I can't, you know, have a, a I don't have like a completion date <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. not something that, that I would ever think about. Um, undertaking in isolation. I think it's really about community building and capacity building and, and listening to working people when they say what they need and what they care about. Um, and, and then together we, you know, develop a sense of what might be possible tomorrow and then also how that might build. Um, so it's not, I'm not coming from a, you know, what we call like vanguardist uh, perspective where people anoint themselves, you know, the, somehow you, you're the one person who's, right. who's not um, uh, so browbeaten by the daily ra- tasks of survival that you're in on the secret. I mean, I, that's not my perspective at all. I think, but I do think that, that working people have a, a, a basic knowledge, a really sophisticated kind of base knowledge of of what their concerns are, what their struggles are, and I think that's where we should always start. So when someone comes up to you at a party and they say, uh, <laughs> "So what do you believe in, in the in the context of the economy? How do you yeah. illustrate without freaking people out, or without, or actually maybe you do want to freak people out, but without?" Yeah getting people in an intellectual territory you don't want them to be in when they think yeah. about your what you're advocating for what are yeah. some of the like practical things that you talk about to help parse out the differences of of what you're saying maybe this mm-hmm. fourth option right i mean i think again i think that so much of my work is done for me because people already have this basic sense. So, you know, I, I, I joke sometimes that, you know, if conservatives or even some liberals think that, you know, I'm, I'm turning my students into communists, for example, like the joke is that their bosses have already done it for me. They, uh, you know, like, and so at, at this party, I, you know, if I were trying to have this kind of conversation. It doesn't make me sound like a very fun party guest, but. Um, <laughs> well, to be fair, it's the person who asked you the question. It's their fault. Yeah. Yeah, they seem like a weirdo. Hello, would you like a drink? And what do you believe? Um, <laughs> but I would ask them what their relationship with their landlord is like. I would ask them what it feels like to have to ask permission to go on vacation from work. I would ask them, you know, like how a commute shapes their experience of being alive. I think that all in all of those ways, people have a really, um, a, you know, a uh, they have an analysis. Uh, I think that the thing that's so hard to get to 
is moving past, yeah, this sucks, to we could do something else. Right, because there's there's no imagination for new, very, very little imagination for new things. So we can all agree on the angst or the discomfort of what a shitty commute feels like or a crappy yeah. boss. But then when you ask people, it, it, this is true, like universally, people are, aren't bad at identifying problems, right. although maybe they can't articulate what the problem is or right. where the root of the problem is. The angst that's felt as a manifestation of the root is usually right. somewhat people are able to articulate that, but then attaching it to a solution is mm-hmm. where we all just sort of say, well, what exists? Right. What's out there right now? And we end up in left, right, mm-hmm. liberal, progressive, conservative, neoconservative, whatever it is. Yeah. So as part of your job, provided you accept the premise of what I just said, to try yeah. and give people a new imagination for other options? I don't, I don't think it's uh, like, I, I don't pretend that I have the power to give people an imagination, but I think that it's a really powerful thing to say as part of a community, like, we don't have to live this way. Mm-hmm. That, and, you know, I've, I've had that conversation with, and I'm, you know, to be clear, what, for whatever, whoever's listening, I'm not actually trying to turn my students into communists. I'm trying to teach them how to think and write, but, yeah. um, but, but I've had, conversations with with particularly with young people um who are brought to tears by the mere suggestion that things don't have to be this way Mm. what do you think they're resonating with well i think that so much of figuring out how to survive in this economy in this world right now is about quieting that sense that you might demand something else because other, I mean, it is admittedly like pretty painful (laughs) to realize that your life doesn't have to be this way, but it is like that hurts much more than thinking, well, this is what we do, you know? And, and so I think that that, um, that's really tough. It's, um, Mm -hmm. but that's where our work needs to be. I think is in just affirming the sense that people already have that, that this isn't enough. What are some of the misconceptions people have about what you do and some of the things that you talk about? What are some of the big things that people just get wrong? In terms of, of teaching or the porn stuff? Well, more, more, the, more the teaching stuff. I think, mm-hmm. the, I think the porn stuff, I assume, would be a little bit more obvious. And I've, and I've been able to, personally anyways, read some of what you've written about that and been interviewed about that. So I'm more interested personally in the, the teaching things and that world. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, a lot of people think that, that gender studies professors are, um, it's one of two things. Like they either think that we're like radicalizing students by the minute um, which I wish they were right. <laughs> but most of my students are too tired. Um, and so they're, you know, what I am trying to do more than, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to, um, I don't need them to, I don't want them to agree with me at the end of this. But what I do want is to give them a sense of their own power because I have such smart, creative students. Um, who have a really smart analysis of their own lives and a really clear sense of what they need to do to get by. 
Um, but they they tend to have no sense that that they might ask for something different. And so I and and I don't even mean this in terms of like building another society, but mm-hmm. just that like that their path doesn't have to be um, what they've been told it does, or you know that if if things don't feel fair at work, you actually do. There are things you can do about that. You can organize with other workers. You can go on strike. You can commit more subtle um, acts of insurrection that protect you. So I think that's one misconception is that like, A, that if if we are trying to radicalize people that it works. And and the reality is I think most of my students are just trying to figure out how not to be in debt till they're 70. Um, And so what I want to do is let them know that they're not, failures, they're not crazy, um, that that is a thing they shouldn't have to be dealing with. And I want to like, let them feel heard uh, about that anxiety. Um, and then I think the other misconception, um, specifically around teaching gender and sexuality studies is that a lot of liberals think that I'm teaching a kind of like lean in, um, feminism, this, the feminism to help get more middle-class white women in power. Um, and so that's a misconception. I often disappoint, uh, well, you're in, you're in Minneapolis, specifically my Minnesota family who are very, very nice liberals. And they're like, Oh, you're teaching people to like be obsessed with Hillary Clinton. I'm like, no, that's mm. you know, so there's this, that misconception about what we do. Um, so on, on either side, I think it's, um, it's missing what at least, you know, I don't actually have a great sense of what my colleagues are doing, I think. Um, but for me, my main goal is to to do what I had done for me, which is to affirm students' like basic sense of, of what they think is going on in their world and then, and then not participate in this sort of um, global level gaslighting, which tells people they're wrong when they have a basic idea that things aren't fair. Yeah. That's a really interesting phrase, global gaslighting. <laughs> well, it's just so <laughs> pervasive. And mm-hmm. I think, it, you know, it drives, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it can drive anyone crazy, mm-hmm. whether it's about, you know, day-to-day gender relations or, um, or, or dealing with work and capital, like all of these things really makes you, it's very alienating to have this, this basic sense, like this doesn't feel right. And then have everyone telling you that you're wrong. Yeah. I think arguably the, our, our friend, Josh and I's friendship is based on calling each other and being like, am I crazy? Right. 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 <laughs> and then it's no, like, all right, talk to you later. Bye. That's huge. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's no i have i definitely have friends who do we can do that for each other and it's mm-hmm. it's so important yeah i'm glad y'all are doing that a lot of a lot of men don't have a friendship like that so it's it, i it's um well it's true and i there's so many things it, i feel like the list is getting longer of things <laughs> Uh, that I have to ask someone else. If, are you are you seeing this? Right, right, right. And um, I think it's a real shame that just as as you know, young people have their their analysis is coming alive, and just as that's happening, they're he- hearing from 
you know, in this case, like a corporate university, I, I just went to um, an event for first generation students, almost all students of color. And there was a lot of it that was really useful and great. But what they were being told, the main takeaway is that in order to economically survive, you have to leave your community behind. And, you know, mm. that's, like, but that it sounds. I know, you're, like you're for those listening. Then we're getting that faces, faces all like, scrunched yeah, up. Like that's right. sad. It yeah. is, but that's that's what um, what institutions tell people to do, right? That like that the way that you can survive is by following the rules, even if they need to crush a part of you to do it. And and I really want to push back against that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that has forever bothered me, let's see if I can actually even articulate it, regardless of where someone lands politically, is that the institution is two things. It's always, it's almost always about the health of the institution. Yes. Right. No, no matter what. And, uh, and then that we treat the institution as though it wasn't created by humans. Right. Those right. two things really get me that... Um, that we can't question, like we have to operate within this paradigm of shareholder value, for example, yeah. no matter no matter what, or the free market, no matter mm -hmm. what. But at the same time, humans made the free market. The free market yeah. has rules. There are rules that that dictate what is quote unquote free and what isn't, and yeah. the same, and there are rules that stated what a shareholder um, can and can't get, and what a fiduciary duty is and is not, and that stuff. I don't pretend to have answers, but it just pisses me off that we aren't questioning that underpinning mm -hmm. and that we're all swimming in this same sea and not ever thinking, is this, what the heck is this? Right. Why is this the way it is? Right. Right. And, and I think, I think that's exactly right. Especially this question about institutions being designed for self-preservation, I think, you know, and that's something, frankly, that I have, um, a lot of disagreement with some other leftists on is, you know, the idea that that even left institutions are organized that way. Um, they don't have to be, but a lot of them are. A lot of unions exist to protect to the union um, rather than, and that's why, for example, most unions historically haven't been in favor of doing away with work, right? <laughs> like that they they need work. They need right. work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so at some point it has to be in its current infrastructure. It has to be selfish. It has to be self-interested, and that's the entire underpinning paradigm of so much of the capitalism that we're working within. That it's all about self-interest, and as long as everyone can fully express their self-interest, then we should be good. Yeah, right. And so I think that's another back to your question about like the difference between radicalism and reform. What you're saying about institutions is exactly why I think reform so often fails, because whether we're talking about nonprofits that, you know, say they're trying to deal with homelessness, but also need homelessness to exist in order for themselves to exist. Um, like n none of this can really get get radically revised um, under conditions of institutions as they exist right now. One example, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with this. If you are, I'd love your thoughts on it. There, in the last, I think, uh, under 10 years, I think, there's been a movement towards rethinking the corporate structure of 
uh, companies mm. from C Corp to mm. a B Corp. Right. Um, and there are a couple of different forms of LLCs and a couple of different forms of public companies that establish a third entity, that of the stakeholder. Mm-hmm. So you can't, in theory, get sued by your shareholders if you lose them money, if you are also then showing that you're benefiting your stakeholder. And your stakeholder might be a community mm. or, or the environment. And so it was attempting to work within the infrastructure and say, well, what, what the fix needs to be here is that um, it's not just about shareholder value. That's part of it. But another part of it is about also these other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this before mm, I ask? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm familiar with it, this general. Yeah. This seems like if I'm hearing you right, that would would that fall in the reform, not radicalized category? Is that right? Yeah, I mean I think it, it sounds I think there are a lot of pieces of that that would be useful, but it's not radical because it still has the basic premise, even if we're talking about shareholders, like the, the corporations only exist as repositories for profit that from a radical perspective was stolen from workers and communities anyway. So that, you know, that it's not uh, like any kind of community good is not theirs to dole out. Um, that it's not, you know, it's not their money to redistribute would be the, the I see. approach. Yeah. And, and you and I, in our last conversation, I think you, maybe it was a conversation, maybe it's something you wrote, or maybe I just dreamt this, but the questioning of of there even being a CEO. I think this is something you brought up. Yeah, is that- I, yeah. I think I was saying, you know, you're asking kind of what brand of feminism I aligned with. And I think I was saying like that, you know, there are some folks right. who want more lady CEOs and those of us who want no CEOs. So Right. That's what yeah. you said. Yeah. yeah. And that and that is because of this idea that you're still exploiting workers in your view, right? Mm-hmm. Workers and communities um, that, you know, mo- that these resources are, do not belong. I would say, I, I'm not making a legal claim, but they do not like ethically belong to the entities that then trade in them. Um, yeah. Whether that be labor time or natural resources or, you know, the ability to, pollute like none of this is actually the rightful territory of the corporation so maybe as a, a couple of closing questions i'm looking at the clock are you okay do you need mm-hmm. to bail yeah i'm okay. okay um two two questions where would someone provided they're still listening and haven't driven their car off a cliff screaming <laughs> down with communism or whatever it is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have very many people who are going to be shocked by listeners who are going to be shocked by what you're saying. I don't think. I have no idea. Um, but back to the top. Yeah. Do you feel um, like there's, there's anything in particular you'd want to say to get people started on this journey and any particular resources you might give them to hmm. um, help them learn a bit more? Huh. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the main thing I would say, and I'll, it's, I'm reiterating what I've said in, in this past hour is to like, to listen to the, like the voice inside your head that says things don't seem quite right. Um, so I, if you're about to drive your car off a cliff, cause this is pissing you off, like really interrogate what is making you so uncomfortable. Um, 
<laughs> and also like why you're in traffic uh, in the middle of the day when mm. you could be on a beach somewhere. Uh, so, so that's that's where I would say kind of conceptually. Um, I can send you some some resources for the show notes maybe in terms of reading yeah. to get people started. But I think the most powerful thing we can do is listen to ourselves on this and then also like talk to people to, if you're, if you're a tenant, talk to other tenants, figure out what, um, what common frustrations you have with your landlord, learn the local law. If there's something on the books, um, let your community members know about, you know, in LA we've got a, or in California, a new rent control law coming up. So I think those kind of conversations, just like really plugging into your community is the most powerful thing. And then also talk to people at work, talk about how much you make, um, talk about, uh, whatever shenanigans your manager is up to and figure out, First of all, like building that kind of community, I think is, is incredibly powerful. And that's why, you know, no one wants us to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we've been asking you all the questions. We'll, we'll do like an official thank you, Heather. And you'll, <laughs> and you'll say thanks for having whatever it is okay. we end up doing. But is there anything, anything else you want to talk about or anything you want to ask us or? Huh. Well, I guess I'm, I mean, if you're comfortable, I'm curious, yeah. like, what do you, what do you think about paying rent and working? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we could do something else? Absolutely. I, I think we talk yeah. about this all the time. But yeah, I, I've been uh, freelancing for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it's very strange to go like work for people and just... Yeah. Our industry is like super inflated and it's weird to be in my 30s and be... Everything of like, do I just climb the ladder so I can exploit people and pay them like right. 300 bucks and right. charge a thousand? Right. So I can just... I'm like, I don't want to manage people. Right. And I hate managers. Yeah, I think about it all the time. Yeah. Very, but the system's built to be like, well, you don't have the, the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I think that's, I mean, that's such a powerful thing to highlight that, that, that those are our choices. You either get to have someone with their boot on your neck or you get to do that for someone else. And I think, yeah, like that was something really, um, visceral for me too that part of why I went into academia because it seemed like a reasonable a reasonably secure career in which unless I took on administrative roles I wouldn't have to be someone's manager mm-hmm. so I totally feel you on that anywho <laughs> well time for a Willy Wonka quote okay my friend Gene Wilder said <laughs> we are the music makers we are the dreamers of dreams Wonderful. I he's love the, it. He's the yes. Yes. That's that's great. That's a great place to end. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank All you right, so much for you. taking time to talk to us. Thanks. Have thanks a good a day. Thank you. All right. <laughs>